My name's John Huggins, a chaplain at Barry, and I'm happy to fill in for Brian this morning. And I just want to say, before I say anything else, I mean, the, the band had already taken us to church, but Terrell, where did he go? Brother, took us like to the third heaven, you know. <laughs> I think we got to get that guy out at Barry. Anybody want, would like to have a concert with that? I, I don't know where he went, but I hope he hears that. <laughs> right there. You'll get a CD or something. Man, that was amazing. Uh, Will you pray with me before I begin? Gracious God, thank you for loving us and being kind to us, showing your loving generosity day after day, steadfast love, sustaining our lives, allowing us this moment to be here to reflect on you, to commune with you. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, in Christ's name, amen. So I wanted to uh, talk this morning on a topic uh, that's really just building off of Ephesians 5, 1, and 2. It's a passage we're going to look at in just a minute. Um, And I titled the sermon, Imitating God, with a question mark after it. Imitating God, with a question mark. What does it mean to imitate God? And you'll see why I call it that when we look at the passage here in a second. So let's go ahead and bring that up. And this is in a section of Ephesians that is sometimes referred to as a paranesis or a paranetic section. That's a section that's in most New Testament letters. You'll get to a point where there's several short moral and ethical exhortations, like a little do this, live like that, love like this, forgive each other, be gracious and kind. It's just one little short command after another. And you'll notice if you read through the New Testament, you get to sections like that in almost every one of them. So it's just a fancy word, paranesis, uh, <clears throat> or a paranetic section for that kind of rhetorical strategy to give these exhortations. So I, I start a little bit ahead of the main passage, because we're kind of picking up right in the middle of it, with the last part of chapter 4. So let me read this for us, allow while you follow along. The text says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. These types of moments that you encounter in most of the New Testament letters are the apostles' way of teaching us, teaching them and us, the the original readers and hearers as well as us, what it means to walk in the Spirit. They're teaching us something that doesn't come natural to us, that is, it doesn't come by nature. It's something that requires a renewed mind, a new way of thinking, a new way of seeing the world. It requires a transformed will. It requires a new heart. And these are all things that are given to us by the Holy Spirit. They're given to all people who trust in Christ. But as I say, they're not things that often come naturally to us. And in fact, they often require a lot of intense effort, a lot of patience or exertion. But the gospel, it's important to remember, the gospel and the work of God are not opposed to effort, but only to earning. And that's an important distinction. 
As Martin Luther once said, God does not need our good works, but our neighbors certainly do. By that, he meant God doesn't need us to achieve salvation. He doesn't need anything from us. He gives it to us totally as a gift of grace. But our neighbors need our good works in order to bless them that their lives may flourish and be good. So all of this is uh, something that flows from God's grace, including our moral efforts. Uh, The power we have to obey is a derived power that comes from the work of the Spirit within us, which is moving us to follow the commands and ways of Christ. And that's why that passage begins by saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It's working in you to be a certain kind of person, to do certain kinds of things. Don't resist those things. Notice that the apostles don't usually say to us, all right, you're in the church now, so just act natural. You be you. You You just do what feels authentic and genuine because that requires no moral effort whatsoever. In fact, anyone can do that. It doesn't require the Holy Spirit to act natural, to just do what feels authentic and genuine. And the other side of it is if we as believers wait for holiness and goodness to feel natural, we might wait forever. And so we need these commands that come from uh, the inspired apostles. They are given to us as people who are already truly loved and accepted, as this text says. If you don't mind leaving up this section that has uh, uh, 5, 1, and 2 in it there. It says, like, the command to be an imitator of God is as beloved children. In other words, the command, the exhortation is rooted in our identity as God's beloved children. You already are this, and now follow this path. Live this way. So we need these commands We need to understand them so that we can show the family features, the Christian family features, live the family virtues, and bear the family resemblance. As I said, uh, we don't bear the divine resemblance uh, by nature. However, it can be, and it is reborn in us by the Holy Spirit. Plus, I think it's important to see the commands Uh, that are all throughout the New Testament from Christ and his apostles about holiness and godliness as ways of teaching us how to live with freedom. Now, that might actually sound odd at first, but commands are meant to teach us how to live with freedom. Gospel freedom is often not the same as uh, freedom as kind of popularly understood in our culture. The notion of freedom, which is sometimes held up to be the highest good, is more or less understood as a kind of freedom from constraints, freedom from rules, the freedom to do whatever the heck you want to do, and this ultimately leads to chaos in people's lives, and it leads to a lot of suffering. But in the Bible, freedom is the freedom to be, to live up to our highest potential and good. It is a freedom from the kinds of slavery that corrupt us and weigh us down. One way I think about this is the the person who has been trained in godliness has a freedom that the person who hasn't does not have. So, for instance, to use a somewhat silly example, uh, you you walk up to a a table full of Krispy Kreme donuts. The person who just believes in, you know, just act natural, you know, just go with what comes authentic and genuine is going to eat them every time, right? They do not have the freedom to walk away. But the one who's been trained 
in, uh, you know, nutrition and health and habits and all that stuff, we'll have the freedom to, to think, is this something I should have or shouldn't have? Well, it's the Lord's Day, so I should, you know. So, you know, <clears throat> or it's any other day, you know. You can walk away. You have a, high, a greater power. So according to our Heavenly Father, holiness is true freedom. This is how Christians live in freedom from slavery, freedom from corruption. Holiness directs or orients us toward what is ultimately good. And holiness is what the Spirit creates. And the Bible says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So holiness and freedom must go together. It's a freedom to live above sin, to live above self, to have the power to love and serve others according to their need and not just for our own sake. But let's go back to this notion of imitating God. Paul gives this exhortation about being an imitator of God just after he's been talking about loving and forgiving one another. So he's especially thinking about those kinds of attributes. You... uh, imitate God by doing those things. Uh, The word here is mimitai, from which we get the word mimic, to mimic something. But what on earth might that mean, to mimic God? And how do we do that? Because maybe there's a bad way and a good way to do that. Um, When you think of the word mimicking, you might think, well, does that mean that we're supposed to uh, pretend to be God? This is actually a real problem, you know. Uh, you've probably all grown up where you had like siblings or cousins or something that in order to irritate you would start copying everything you said and did. You, you all had that you know, younger sibling. You know, mine never did that, but you know, I hear it happens. Um, and it's, it's irritating. I've actually seen my own kids do this stuff. You know, you can't stand it. You're like, stop copying me. Stop copying me. You know, <laughs> they just do everything you do. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that's just annoying. And the other um, way in which... You know, people pretend, when we pretend to be something that's good, we often, especially in this case, if imitating God means pretending to be, we're just going to be a cheap imitation, not a good one. And you know how imitations work. They're never as good as the real thing, uh, and sometimes they're downright awful. Uh, for example, whenever something is really good, you will get lots of imitations. So there's a website that list all the known imposters for Dr. Pepper, all right? Now, I don't like soda very much, but I'm committed to Dr. Pepper. I, I mean, I, just, I really like it. My soul kind of craves it, you know, I, every day. And because it's so good, this website lists nearly 100 different imposters, Dr. Pepper imposters. I'm going to read some of these names to you in a second. But I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what other soda has that many imposters or imitations? I mean, nobody's making like imitation tab. You know, it's like this carbonated epicac. You know, nobody wants that stuff. Maybe that's what LaCroix is. But never, never mind. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. Listen to some of these. Okay. Dr. A+. I like it. Dr. Bash. Dr. Best. Dr. Better. Dr. Biggie, Dr. Bob, Dr. Bold, Dr. Cheers, Dr. Cool, I like that one, Dr. Dazzle, Delight, Dr. Dynamite, uh, Dr. Fresh, and on and on. There's a Dr. Parker here. Seriously, 
I had no idea. There's a beverage named after Dr. Parker. Dr. Perky. That's got to be the worst one of all. And I'm going to stop with that one. You know, and I just made a big deal over something that's totally ridiculous. I don't want an imitation Dr. Pepper. If you're selling it, I'm not buying it. But how easily do we accept some imitation of God himself? Something that's less than God that we will look to to do the same things for us that only God can do. And when we look to them and become an imitator of the imitation, uh, it ends up resulting in corruption. It's downright awful. Now, I also want to say that some mimicking comes naturally to us uh, or is by nature. For instance, the kind of mimicking where kids look like their parents. You know, some of you, you've seen some of the kids in church. You're like, I know who your mom and daddy are. I can tell by looking at you. They could never uh, deny that you're their kid. Or you see siblings that look like each other that aren't twins, and you wonder if they're twins. You know, perhaps you're like that. You know, we have people in this congregation that look like famous people. For instance, this is Jeff Holloway, (laughs) Coach Jeff Holloway, and David Platt. They're the same person. David Platt is the author of the book Radical. He was a he's a pastor, secret church, pastor of a huge church professor. Uh, He was the head of North American Mission Board. Every time I see David preach, I think Jeff is brilliant. (laughs) Or another one. This is Jefferson and Elvis Costello. I I'm pretty sure Elvis is copying him. He's trying to be. Jefferson, or again, that's that's Josh Tolman on the right, oh wait, no, I mean on the left, and Zac Efron on the right. It's the same person. I'm so glad he came to Christ and became campus outreach coordinator. It's great. And then uh, that's Brian Pierce and Russell Crowe. You know, I've always thought we had the most attractive pastor in town, you know. He's a stud, but he's not here to see this this morning, so I can get away with it. And then, oh, this is my sister Gretchen and Julia Roberts, you know, if you don't mind me saying so. Although I do think Julie uh, Bowling and Gretchen look a lot alike. They favor each other. You see, who else do we have here? Oh, that, you may not see, that's, that's Coach K. And Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I mean, am I right? You see Coach K and you think, this is The Rock. Sorry to put the picture of you in your swimsuit there. Okay, let's go to the next one. And then, well, this is just two pictures of Emily Matson, Or maybe it's Leanne Goya. I don't know. And you might not either. These two people are the same person. Those are actually two different people in our church. Okay, so, uh, oh, sorry, one last one. That's Jeremy Marshall on the left. I don't know who that is on the right, you know. It's, uh, he's like Aquaman or something, I guess. I'd like to thank Jefferson for helping me put this together. This idea struck me in the middle of church one day as I was looking at people. Um, I said, I've got to make a sermon about this. All right. So all this is to say that some mimicking we can't help. We just have it by nature. And it might be good, as in most of these examples. You know, I mean... Tony's got to feel pretty good looking like the Wayne, the Rock Johnson. That's pretty cool. Um, 
and some of them are not. But that's certainly not the kind of imitation that the passage is calling us to, a kind of mimicking that might come by nature or a cheap imitation. It's calling us to an imitation as reflection. An imitation as reflection to reflect something requires some intentionality. And in this case, it's about reflecting the character of God, His mercy, His goodness into the world. This is the basic human vocation that we see in Genesis, where humans are called to bear the image and likeness of God. I understand this as a relational, representational calling, where humans are given a calling to relate to God in a special way and to represent Him in the world by reflecting, like an angled mirror, His attributes into the world. And the language of reflection helps us recognize that we are not the source of goodness, wisdom, justice, beauty, and all of that, but are reflecting those things as God shines them onto our lives. We can reflect them out into the world around us. This is a capacity that humans are created with, but something that becomes corrupt in our fall into sin. The good news is that this image-bearing capacity is reconstituted in us when we are in Christ, as we are rectified or regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So the passage is really getting at telling us, be who you are, yes, but who you are in Christ. Be authentic, yes, but authentically Christian. Be genuine, yes, but genuine in your discipleship. Bear the family resemblance this is what it, that looks like, not pretending to be God, but to reflect His ways, His love and truth into the world and among one another. Now, in the second verse, it uh, calls us, it kind of keeps building, to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. Let's talk about the phrase, live in love. Um, oftentimes something like that is used as a way of summing everything up or comprehending all the commands of God by telling us to love one another. As the Apostle Paul says, love does no wrong to its neighbor, so to love your neighbor sums up the whole law. Um, All the commands of God are expressions of love to God and love for others. The problem is we don't know what love means. We use this word and throw it around, it gets reduced and cheapened to mean just positive feelings or sentiment. I love this food. I love this place. I love this book. I love this movie or these people. I love my books, my bed, my lunch, my children, my wife, my parents, my work. Does love mean the same thing in all of these cases? According to... A lot of pop music and romantic comedies, love is apparently like a pit you can fall into and out of. But in this case, when it tells us to walk in love, it's saying it's the word agape, to walk in agape love. What does that look like? That's how Christ loved us. So the command to walk in love is qualified. How do you love one another? Not just in any way you might choose, but as Christ loved us. And then that's further explained by saying, when he gave himself up for us. 
to walk in love. What's that look like? It looks like Jesus. What did he do? Gave himself up for us. That is to say, love in the Bible is self-giving. It's sacrificial for the good of another. It's taking responsibility for someone or something. Becoming bound to that person. You take up willingly the obligation to care for, to look after, and bless that person, that thing. It is not mere sentiment, romantic, or positive feelings. In fact, in the Bible, love is a strong and serious word. Not one that can be cheapened or thrown around. Love costs us like it cost Jesus. Love will cost you your life. And it will give you your life. So to me, the Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, are, it's, it's kind of a say-it-all passage. It's one of those that summarizes so much. You know, if we just kind of committed ourselves to these two verses, what might that look like? It's like other passages. I love those say-it-all kind of passages. They're easier to wrap my head around. Like Micah 6, 8. What should I do? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. What are the great commands? To love God and your neighbor as yourself. And here it is, to be an imitator of God as his beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. But you might uh, see this and say, that sounds good and right. I sense that I'm not so great at this. Um, What should we do? How can I become a person who is a beloved imitator of God and walks in love? And I want to say that I think that part of the answer lies in true worship. What I mean by that, true worship, I mean truly beholding the true triune God. That's in beholding and worshiping the true triune God, we become transformed to reflecting His image. We become empowered, able to reflect His character traits into the world. There's a spiritual principle in the Bible, it seems to me, that we become like whatever or whomever we worship. We imitate them the way we dress up like famous people, you know, from time to time, or famous people dress up like us, like Elvis Costello and Jefferson, you know. Or we try to look like uh, the people that we admire. This is why idolatry is so dangerous. When we start to reflect a God that is not God, it often leads to injustice or violence or a kind of arrogance um, or immorality in one way or another. <clears throat> look at this passage, 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18. I want to look at two passages that get at this notion of truly beholding, true worship being the pathway to truly imitating God. <clears throat> this passage says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom, which we referred to earlier. And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Being transformed into the image of what we're beholding. But what are we beholding? From one degree of glory to another, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And then again in Colossians chapter 3. Another paranetic section. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge 
after the image of its creator. So your inner self is being renewed after the image of God. You're being remade in God's image as a Christian. And then it goes on to say here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And you know the only point I kind of wanted to make about that is it's, it demonstrates how in the church we together are being made, remade in the image of God. And this aspect of our identity, God's beloved children, transcends any other kind of identity labels we might have had beforehand, <clears throat> bringing together all of these folks into one beautiful, diverse family where there should be mutual appreciation and the ability to see Christ in the other, <clears throat> Christ in all. Well, I don't know if you're, I wonder if you've ever heard of a French philosopher named René Girard. It's a picture of René Girard. Uh, he's a 20th, mainly 20th century French thinker who developed an idea called mimetic desire, mimetic desire. And that's basically the idea that we learn basically as humans by imitating other people. We see something, we see what someone does or what someone loves or what someone longs for, and we take it on ourselves. We learn by imitation for either good or ill. Uh, He develops this thought in ways in which he says people, conflict results from two people imitating the same desires. They both want the same Thing. And so it brings them into conflict. And the only way the conflict can be resolved is via a scapegoat. Now, I'm not focusing on that part of his uh, thought, but mainly the idea that we copy people's actions and attitudes, but not just their actions and attitudes. We take on the desires, loves, and longings of other people that we esteem as important or worthy. Let me say it again. We copy the actions, attitudes, we imitate and take on the desires, loves, and longings of those we esteem as important or worthy. Now, this can be used in negative ways. It can be manipulated. For instance, when you're like watching a commercial and there's an attractive person who's happily drinking a Coca-Cola. Uh, and you know, I mean, why else would you buy a Coca-Cola? Uh, you know, it's not Dr. Pepper, and it doesn't taste good. You know, it's, it's like a, it's not good for you, but because that attractive, happy person bought it, all of a sudden you think, I want a Coca-Cola too, you know? Or you, they show a pic- pictures of an attractive, happy family who just, you know, bought a $50,000 car. I mean, why else would you buy a $50,000 car? But you buy it because you want to be like the happy family. You know, I want what they want. I love what they love. We're imitating these actions. This is how we work as creatures. So even though it can be used negatively, it can also be put to redemptive and good use as we within the church community begin in the power of the Spirit, seeking and aiming to imitate God in our love for one another, that this also creates the imitation effect where other people think, I want to do that too. I, I'm receiving somebody's selfish, self-giving, I mean selfless, self-giving love, and I want to give it too. Uh, I'm seeing uh, new people come into our communion. They should be able to see this is, these people are this way because they believe God loves them this way. I want to be like that too. Uh, this happens positively when parents model good things for their children, coaches for their athletes, or professors for their students. But for believers, our call is to fix our eyes on Jesus, to love what he loves, to desire what he desires, and to act as he does. So let me just conclude by asking you to consider and let us ask ourselves, 
What are we imitating? What are we known for? And do we bear the family resemblance? Can people get a good sense of what Jesus must be like by encountering us? Us as individuals, us as a family, us as community? Do we demonstrate the family values? Why is this important? It's important because when we do, we bring life and shalom and redemption into the world. We help people see Jesus as believable and beautiful and worthy to be trusted as our Lord and Savior. Uh, But when we don't, we do harm to the advancing of the gospel, or we make it more difficult for people to see and believe. How might we respond to this call to be imitators of God, to walk in love? I think the proper response to most of these commands, if not all of them, is to confess, pray, trust, and obey. I say that because it's easy for me to remember. Confess, pray, trust, and obey. What I mean by that, confession is to hear the command and in humble repentance acknowledge that I fall short of this on my own all the time. To pray is to ask God to continue His transforming work in me, to do in me what I can't do for myself, liberate my soul from wrong desires, loves, and actions, and teach me to love what you love. To trust is to trust in the abundant and full grace of God for me and you. To know that you are a beloved child of God no matter what, even on your worst day. You go to bed loved and accepted by him. And let that trust empower us to move forward in obedience from here. So let's make it our prayer during our time of response now that we want to reflect you, Lord, more truly in heart, mind, and action and toward all people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do... uh, confess that though we have received such abundant love and mercy, uh, we're not always great at reflecting these qualities into our world. Though you teach us wisdom all throughout your word, we're not often good at reflecting your wisdom. We easily accept the world's version of that. We also confess to being um, a bad imitation when we claim to represent you. And we ask that your grace would... uh, lift us up. Would you please forgive us and be merciful to us? Would you please work in our hearts now to be so full of the Spirit, so full of the light and life that you bring, that we can't help but want to reflect that into the world around us. We ask this by the power of the Spirit in accordance with your grace in Christ's name. Amen.